introduction. I'm really pleased to be here. So I'm going to talk today about um, a couple of stories from my lab uh, that had to do uh, with the intersection of, of uh, signal transduction pathways, uh, transcription factor regulation, and cell identity, which is the cell identity being the main thing that we're interested in in uh, developing pancreas and adult pancreas. So as I think everyone knows, the pancreas has two uh, main functions. I think that that when I started working on the pancreas now, almost 15 years ago, uh, the one that I most knew about was the endocrine function, uh, fulfilled by the islets of Langerhans. Um, but the majority of the organ is the exocrine pancreas, the major uh, cell type of which are the acinar cells that produce uh, digestive enzymes. And those enzymes are then transported through a network of ducts into the intestine where they become active to break down food. Um, and when those, but when those enzymes become active in, in the pancreas itself, that can cause pancreatitis. And then, of course, pancreatic cancer is one of the worst uh, human malignancies, uh, has been classically thought to arise from duct cells because the, uh, under the microscope the, uh, and by antibody staining, gene expression, et cetera, the cells have the characteristics of duct cells. Uh, as we'll talk about, whether they, the, uh, the, uh, it might not actually be the case that they do arise from ducts. So my background uh, is in developmental biology, and this is sort of a developmental biology view of the pancreas where uh, we start with the specification of progenitor cells um, expressing transcription factors including PDX1, which you'll hear a lot about in this talk. Um, those those multi-component progenitors have to grow and then differentiate into the three major cell types. And we know a lot about different transcription factors that are required for various stages of this uh, differentiation process. So for example, neurogenin-3 or NGN-3 is expressed uh, specifically in the progenitors of the islet lineage. Um, and it's completely required for their differentiation. And quite a few transcription factors have been well characterized, including, of course, NKS 2.2 here by Laurie Sussel, uh, involved in islet differentiation. And um, fewer transcription factors are known for the duct and acinar lineages, but that's partly because there's been so much intensive interest in beta cell development. There's less known about signals involved in pancreas development. One of the few signals that, that um, has been known for a while is the NOP signaling pathway, and I'll talk briefly about that today. Um, but we're, because we know that signals are good drug targets, they also are relatively easy to manipulate from the outside, we've been very interested in signaling pathways involved in pancreas development and how these different cell types get established, how they're maintained in the adult, and then um, how they, uh, uh, they may or may not break down their differentiation during disease. We use the Cree-Lox system in mouse for most of our work. Uh, I think probably everybody knows the system quite well, but I'll just briefly review it. The idea basically being that you can put Lox P sites around a gene of interest and then knock it out into pancreas or other specific lineage with a Cree targeted to those uh, cells of interest, and that will generate a, gene, a tissue specific knockout. And we also can do the opposite, which is to turn genes on in a lineage-specific manner. So here, what Cree is doing is removing a stop uh, cassette that basically prevents transcription from, driven by the ubiquitous promoter. So in this case, which is a reporter mouse that we use a lot, called Rosa 26 EYFP, uh, in the absence of Cree, this stop sequence prevents transcription of YFP. But when Cree is active, this cell and all of its daughter cells will permanently express YFP. So that's how we can do these lineage tracing experiments, such as this. Uh, where we've used PDX1 Cree to activate rows of YFP in a control mouse that doesn't have any Cree, there's no green cells, and here we're just staining sections for insulin, so we use some beta cells in a newborn mouse. These are acinar cells expressing amylase, which comprise, again, the majority of the, of the organ. Um, but following your combination of Cree, you see GFP uh, throughout the organ, including all the beta cells uh, and nearly all the duct and acinar cells, although there are a few acinar cells that, are, uh, that escape recombination, and those actually become important later in my talk. 
So I'm going to talk about two uh, of the projects in the labs I mentioned. So the first one is going to be a developmental biology story about uh, the role of wind beta catenin signaling in uh, the growth and differentiation of embryonic progenitors in the pancreas. And then an adult story having to do with uh, uh, pancreatic cancer and uh, the role of, of cell identity differentiation in tumor initiation. So we'll start with the beta catenin story. And I'll give a little bit of background um, and a tiny bit of a summary of what I'm going to tell you uh, uh, looking at how we think the pancreas, how we have a more nuanced picture of how the pancreas develops. So instead of just thinking about it as, as uh, a lineage diagram, um, increasingly it's become, becoming obvious that we have to think about the pancreas as a three-dimensional morphogenetic, pro uh, 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 developing a three-dimensional morphogenetic process. So this is an embryonic day 12.5 mouse pancreas named for PTF1A, which is a transcription factor that marks the multipotent progenitor cells that will give rise to all the lineages of the pancreas. And at this stage, the pancreas has become polarized into a distal domain, uh, which expresses PTF1A, uh, and then a uh, proximal or trunk domain, um, which is where the endocrine cells will arise. The endocrine and duct cells do differentiate in the center of the organ, while the, um, organ is, the growth of the organ is driven by the proliferation of these so-called tip cells located distally. What I'm going to tell you, or try to convince you, is that beta-catenin has a critical role in uh, est establishing this boundary between distal and proximal uh, differentiation, uh, and it does so by a mechanism that we had not anticipated. So the reason that we started to work on beta-catenin, of course, was this role of the wind signaling pathway, and, and wind signaling has been involved in many uh, different lineages and many kinds of stem cells, and so we thought uh, uh, it probably has a role in the pancreas. Uh, the way that the wind signaling pathway works and where, how the catenin functions in that pathway, it's normally synthesized in the cytoplasm, but then constitutively or, or rapidly bound and phosphorylated by a so-called destruction complex, um, the key uh, enzyme of which is this GSK3 beta, which phosphorylates beta catenin and marks it for degradation. And in this uh, resting circumstance, the downstream target genes are uh, kept inactive. When winds are present, they bind to these co-receptors this activates a protein called disheveled, um, and that in, in turn induces the dissociation of this destruction complex. So beta catenin can now accumulate, um, and a subset of that protein can enter the nucleus and activate downstream target genes. So by deleting beta catenin, essentially we can turn off the entire canonical wind signaling pathway, regardless of which, which particular ligands are, are present. So I actually started this as a postdoc and made a beta catenin knockout mouse in the pancreas using a floxtonyl beta catenin that was generated several years ago in which the first uh, five coding exons are flanked by lots of P sites, and this makes a, a functionally null protein. There's no uh, activity at all from the, uh, whatever protein is made after you delete this. There, I should say there are some coding exons down here. Um, and by using PDX1 pre, PDX being expressed in the earliest uh, cells of the pancreas, we basically delete uh, beta catenin throughout the entire organ. And what we observed uh, 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 was something at that point, at the, initially we sort of thought made sense. The organ was smaller, and we knew that wind signaling was involved in proliferation, for example, in the <coughs> intestine and the brain. So having a smaller organ made some sense. So this is a, a neonatal um, guts of a mouse here, the stomach, the loop, first loop of the duodenum, and then in red, the dorsal pancreas, which is the tail of the pancreas in humans, and the ventral pancreas in blue, which is the head of the pancreas in humans. And you can see that both of those organs, are, or both of those lobes are dramatically reducing size. Uh, in the beta catenin knockout. The basis for that was a little bit unexpected. What it turned out uh, when we investigated further was that the major defect was loss of a single cell type, which is the acinar cells. So here is histology on the newborn pancreas of a wild-type mouse, 
Um, these dark clusters here are islets, and these bright red uh, uh, structures are the acinar cells. Here we just stain for insulin. You can see these insulin positive islets. In the knockout, there's very, very few acinar cells. And since acinar cells are the majority of the organ, it seems that most of the, the deficit in that organ is caused by the lack of acinar cells. Islet cells still differentiate uh, in the absence of beta-catenin. These acinar cells that, that do form are basically those same cells that didn't undergo recombination that I showed you in that lineage diagram, or that lineage tracing experiment. So the Cree is not 100% effective. You have some so-called escaper cells, and those can still differentiate. And they do so in a cell autonomous manner, which sort of says that the wind is really required in the progenitors of the acinar cells themselves. Uh, uh, you can have a, a, a wild-type cell completely surrounded by knockout cells, and it will still differentiate normally. What uh, one of my graduate students decided to, to look at in more depth was what's going on with the islet lineage. Because um, at a glance, it looks like islet cells are still differentiating normally. I should say these are not escaper cells. These are bona fide beta and null cells still forming islets. Um, but he, there had been some question in the field about whether beta, uh, beta cells or other islet cells might require a for beta catenin signaling for their development. And he decided to investigate that. So what he did was a very careful reconstruction of the pancreas basically taking serial sections from organs at different stages and exhaustively um, uh, documenting the amount of cells in different lineages present. So that he can, rather than looking at a single section uh, where appearances can be somewhat deceiving, he could get the absolute volume occupied by different cell types. So for example, here's a control mouse uh, towards the end of embryogenesis, uh, same for ecocurin, which labels the entire epithelium, um, and then same for insulin, you can see the beta cells. And then here's a knockout. You can see it's much smaller, much less epithelial cells, and in fact, proportionally, it looks like there might be more beta cells. So there's a, uh, if you look at these sections like this, you can trick yourself into thinking that actually the loss of beta-catenin enhances beta cell differentiation because as a proportion of the epithelium, that uh, fraction actually goes up. So this is the total epithelium. It's about tenfold reduced in size. But the alpha cells, beta cells, and other um, uh, insulin or other islet cell types are actually reduced in the absence of beta-catenin. So beta-catenin is required for the normal development of islet cells, although it's more of a quali quantitative rather than a qualitative requirement. These cells, they, they still form, but they don't form in the appropriate numbers. So what he then asked was, is this because beta-catenin is required in the islet cells or their immediate precursors? For example, it might be required for the survival or proliferation of these cells. To address this, we use a different Cree. So he, and I should actually have mentioned his name is Brett Baumgartner. I'll, I'll uh, acknowledge him at the end of the talk as well, but I should have mentioned him. Uh, so what Brett did was use a Cree that's driven by the neurogenin 3 promoter. So this then will hit only the islet lineage. And when we delete beta-catenin from the islet lineage, we get no phenotype at all. So there's still normal numbers of beta cells generated. This is a, a postnatal mouse. You can see that uh, stain for beta-catenin in green. So in the, in the uh, upper uh, panel, you can see there's beta-catenin in all cells, including the beta cells. In the bottom panel, in an insulin or an islet-specific knockout, you can see the beta cells are devoid of beta-catenin protein. But these mice are completely normal. And at six or more months of age, you don't see any sort of diabetic phenotype in these mice. So what that says is that beta team is required, we knew already for the development of acinar cells, and now we know it's required for the development of islet cells, but it's required somewhere upstream of the, the NGM3 step. And so what we began to think was that perhaps what's going on is a loss of these tip cells. So these tip cells are the cells that will give rise to all the lineages, and if those are reduced in number, um, you can imagine that that would um, prevent the formation of acinar cells and also reduce the availability of those cells to give rise to islets. 
So Brett stained for several markers of the, that cell population. So these are um, three different uh, uh, markers of TIP cells. So PTF1A is that one I mentioned before. You can see it's expressed in these peripheral uh, uh, domains. Carboxypeptidase A1 or CPA1, this is an enzyme that's actually later specific to acinar cells. Um, but Doug Melton's group had shown several years ago that fortuitously, or perhaps not fortuitously, it's actually expressed by these multipotent TIP cells. So these multipotent TIP cells resemble in many respects acinar cells. So they express PTF1A, uh, they express CPA1, they, they express a few other en um, uh, enzymes that are characteristic of acinar cells, but during early development, they're actually multipotent. And then CMIT, which of course is a, a WIC target gene itself, uh, and, is, and is important for proliferation. All of these are normally expressed by the TIP cells, and all of these markers are dramatically reduced in the absence of beta catenin. So this is just quantified down here. And I should say this reduction is both an absolute reduction and a proportional reduction. That is to say, the, the organ is smaller, but even within that residual organ, these cells are depleted in the absence of beta-catenin. So there seems to be really a requirement for beta-catenin to maintain uh, this peripheral, distal, multipotent uh, uh, progenitor cell population. If we go earlier, so look at the, uh, one day earlier development, embryonic day 11.5, we see that these cells are actually established normally at that stage. So in a knockout, we still generate PTF1A positive cells early on. Um, but then over the next 24 hours, whereas those numbers increase and that population expands in wild type, the population actually shrinks uh, in the absence of beta-catenin. Which led us to wonder then what happens to those cells? Are they, wh wh where are they going? And, and we knew, we looked very hard, we didn't see any evidence for um, increased apoptosis. There's basically no apoptosis going on in either a wild type or a knockout at this stage. Um, and so we began to wonder, perhaps, rather than dis simply disappearing, they might actually be adopting the alternate fate, this so-called trunk or, or proximal uh, differentiation pattern. So in fact, that seems to be the case. So neurogenin-3 is this islet precursor marker that I mentioned. It's normally expressed in sort of a salt and pepper pattern in the um, proximal epithelial cells, the trunk. And we see an expansion of the NGN3-positive population in the absence of beta-catenin. So these cells are shifting from a distal fate, where they're multipotent and will ultimately give rise to acinar cells, to a more restricted trunk fate, um, including the ability to give rise to endocrine cells. So we actually see this transient increase in NGN3-positive cells. And if we look a day later, we see a transient increase in alpha cells. But it's transient in the sense that because those multipotent progenitors are not available to continue feeding into the system, um, ultimately the total number of, of islet cells falls short because there's not enough uh, uh, progenitor cells around. So this is just summarizing um, uh, what Brett has found with beta catenin uh, in terms of its cellular role. So early on, you, have, you initiate proximal distal patterning without beta catenin, but then to maintain this distal multipotent progenitor population, you require beta catenin. And what Brett has also shown is that the proliferation of these cells um, requires beta catenin as well. It turns out actually the trunk cells also require beta catenin for their proliferation. I'll, I'll talk more about that shortly. Um, when we lose beta catenin, we shift the cells to a proximal fate. Transiently, then, that increases their capacity to generate, beta, or to generate endocrine cells. But in the long run, um, because these cells are no longer the self, you don't have a self-renewing multipotent population anymore, the number of uh, endocrine cells falls short. So at a molecular level, what's going on? So I, t I, I, you know, I've, I've told you that we approached this problem because we knew that beta-T was involved in wind signaling. Um, as summarized here. But many of you probably know that beta catenin has another major role, which is in cell-cell adhesion. So normally, beta catenin, in addition to its role in wind signaling, in basically all cells of, of the body um, binds to adherent proteins on the cell surface 
um, and links into alpha catenin, which in turn links into the actin cytoskeleton. And this is really critical for cell cell adhesion, especially within epithelial tissues. We have not previously, we've, uh, we still have to date, have never seen any obvious epithelial defect in the absence of beta catenin, and that's partly because a related protein called gamma catenin or platyglobin gets upregulated when we knock out beta catenin. So that's just shown here. Normally, there's very low levels of platyglobin in the pancreatic epithelium, but when we knock out beta catenin, this gets upregulated as a compensatory response, and this has been seen in other tissues as well. So we had, for a long time, sort of written off the epithelial function of beta-catenin, but it's always been there nagging at us for other reasons as well. Um, uh, uh, that perhaps the role was not in wind signaling, but was actually in adhesion. And only recently we've been able to address this question. So we were able to address this with the help of uh, Conrad Bosler at the University of Zurich, who developed several, a couple of years ago some very innovative reagents for studying the wind signaling pathway. So here's the wild-type structure of beta-catenin in a purely non-structural form. These balls are the armadillo repeats. So armadillo is the Drosophila homolog of beta-catenin, and there are, there's a repeated domain that's, that's reiterated multiple times in, throughout beta-catenin. And it's, a, it's basically a multifunctional protein-protein interaction domain. And what you can see is that the wild-type beta-catenin binds to e-cadherin via these armadillo repeats, and also binds to these transcription factors of the TCF left family um, via the same central core. And this has been the classic problem of distinguishing between the functions of this protein is that the same exact residues are responsible for binding e-cadherin as for binding left TCF. So there's really been no way of mutating beta-catenin to spare one function and leave the other one intact. However, what um, uh, uh, Conrad and his colleagues appreciated was that the N-terminus of beta-catenin and the C-terminus of beta-catenin are required for recruiting coactivator proteins to the transcriptional role, for its transcriptional role, but those are not required for its, its uh, structural role. And so whereas our, our null mutation that we've been using, the straight knockout, destroys all beta-catenin function, they were able to introduce two mutations into beta-catenin, the N, at point mutant in the N-terminus and a deletion on the C-terminus, that completely disrupts its signaling role, but leaves its structural function intact. So we could use these then to, um, to ask what beta, whether beta-catenin's role is in structural or signaling as far as the pancreas development is concerned. What Brett does then, he um, takes these mice with pdx one pre in the background, crosses them to the FOX allele, the idea then being in the so-called PBSKO, or pancreatic beta-catenin signaling knockout, um, the, the only, the, the Cree will delete the flock allele, so the only copy of beta catenin that these cells will express will be this form which is structurally sound but signaling incompetent. We can be, one of the reasons that we know that the structural function is, is restored is that whereas in, in the straight beta catenin knockout we get this compensatory upregulation of platyglobin, that doesn't happen in the signaling knockout. So the signaling function seems by all intents and purposes to be completely intact. So the question is then, does this recapitulate the straight knockout phenotype, which would say that, in fact, the knockout phenotype is due to signaling? So here's the straight knockout I showed you earlier, this reduced dorsal and ventral pancreas. And when Brett began to um, harvest these mice, initially we thought that the answer was, we guess we were recapitulating it. So you can see there's a much smaller dorsal and ventral pancreas in this knockout. But one thing that is obvious to anybody who's worked on pancreas cells or, 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 or mouse pancreas is, um, you can see these, these, this is the opaque and white. These are acinar cells. So acinar cells have a very, very characteristic appearance under the microscope. And one, this was quite unusual that you could see macroscopically obvious acinar cells in the signaling knockout. So we then wanted to know what's really going on um, in terms of the development of this organ. 
So we were able to develop an assay to, to, to detect cells that have deleted the C-terminus of, of beta-catenin. So that is to say, cells which only express the, the signaling deficient mutant. So we have a core domain antibody that recognizes both wild-type beta-catenin as well as uh, the, the signaling deficient mutant, and then a C-terminal antibody that is that where the staining will be absent in the signaling deficient mutant. So if we stain with that core antibody that recognizes both forms, here's a control mouse. So we're staining with beta-catenin um, in green and ecadherin in red. And you can see that these are basically the acinar cells of the, of the uh, uh, late fetal pancreas. And here's probably some islet cells. They all stain with both. And in the signaling knockout, um, if we use that core antibody, you can see that, that pro the, the, um, uh, uh, their, their beta-catenin protein is still being made. But if we stain with the C-terminal antibody, where is that present in the knockout or in the wild type? Uh, in the knockout, you can see these areas where the C-terminal staining is gone. So that means that these cells are cells that have developed without beta-catenin signaling function. They express even here and only. So what are those cells? It turns out those are ASNAR cells. So to our, to our surprise, uh, whereas we never see uh, knockout um, cell, straight knockout cells developing into ASNAR cells, or essentially never see them, uh, in the uh, signaling knockout, those cells are now competent to differentiate into ASNAR cells, so expressing amylase here. Brett went to uh, quantify this, so now we're comparing control mice, um, complete knockout and signaling knockout mice, and staining with that C-terminal antibody. Uh, well, of course, the control, all the cells stained in a complete knockout. Um, there are very few ASNAR cells at all, and the ones that do develop are basically the escaper cells. So these are cells that did not delete beta-catenin. There's very, very few actual knockout ASNAR cells. But in the signaling knockout, there's lots of signaling. There's lots of ASNAR cells that develop um, in the absence of beta-catenin signaling function. So that says that there's a real difference between these two, and then that also in turn means that the signaling function is not required for uh, ASNR development, um, but that the structural function is. So what about earlier patterning of the pancreas, the distal proximal stuff that I was mentioning earlier? So what Brett in fact found, if we compare um, uh, control and straight knockout again, we have this dramatic loss of distal cells. If we, control, if we compare control and the signaling knockout, although the signaling knockout is reduced in size and there's a clearly a proliferation defect in these mutants, we still see plenty of, uh, of tip cells. So you can see the fraction, the total amount of tip cells goes up, and this actually restores it to the proportional balance you would expect for a smaller organ. So the organ is reduced in size, but its actual pattern of differentiation is essentially normal. The uh, differentiation of the NGN3 positive cells is also normalized in the absence of, or in the signaling knockout. So then that tells us that there's basically multiple roles for beta-catenin that are mechanistically distinct. There is a signaling role for beta-catenin that seems to be primarily devoted to proliferation. So in the absence of beta-catenin signaling, the organ is smaller because there's less proliferation of both the distal and proximal progenitor cells. It looks, so I haven't told you about this, but we have some work, we've done some work on proliferation of adult acinar cells where we knew beta-catenin was involved, and it looks like that is also a signaling function. But then this early patterning function, which ultimately determines the balance of endocrine versus exocrine cells, uh, requires structural function of beta-catenin. So what's the mechanism by which the structural function um, acts to, to, to um, polarize the, the developing pancreas? And we don't know at an exact level, but we have some clues we've gotten recently. Um, and this is um, uh, in part driven by work that we and others have done on notch signaling. So notch has an, basically an opposite role to beta-catenin. So we know whereas beta-catenin is required for the development of ASNR cells, notch is required to suppress the development of ASNR cells. And it's been shown by um, uh, Yuval Dor and others that this reflects an early role for notch in 
having a, um, a proximalizing pancreas, where beta catenin is required for distal development, not just required for proximal development. So we thought that when we lose, when we lose beta catenin, we get this excessive proximal development. Is that because notch is becoming unleashed? So uh, Brett did a culture experiment where he took the early developing mouse pancreas, so the dorsal bud of the pancreas, from beta catenin knockouts. Um, and we know that if we take wild type or knockout ones, we let them grow, they'll differentiate into exocrine and endocrine cells. Of course, the knockout will make many fewer exocrine cells, as we expect. And then we could add an um, inhibitor of NOx signal, a gamma secretase inhibitor. In this case, we use one called DBZ. Um, and you can ask what happens. So this is a knockout pancreas then, not treated with DBZ, cultured in vitro. And he stained this for CKA1, this uh, tip cell and, and ASNAR marker, um, along with beta-catenin. What you can see is there's relatively few um, CKA1 positive cells, and most of them are actually escaper cells. So these are cells that didn't undergo deletion. They still express beta-catenin. There's relatively few red cells that, don't, that are not also green. But when we keep the knockouts and treat them with gamma secretase inhibitor, now we're all of a sudden rescuing all these knockout cells to differentiate into ASNAR or tip cells. So that's shown up here quantified. The escaper cells, these are the blue cells here, they're not affected by DBZ. So DBZ is not having some general, um, uh, it's not, for example, inducing the proliferation of, of exocrine cells. But instead, the true knockout cells uh, increase from a relatively small proportion to a relatively large proportion and a relatively large absolute numbers. So what that says is that by mechanisms that we don't know biochemically how it works yet, uh, the structural function, the cell-cell adhesion role of beta-catenin is required to suppress NOx signaling. And when NOx signaling becomes hyperactive, that in turn pr promotes proximalization of the pancreas. So the main thing we're trying to figure out now is the, the actual mechanism at a more biochemical and cellular level. So uh, how does how do beta-catenin deficient cells hyperactivate NOx uh, at what level of the pathway is it acting? So I'm going to now turn um, to the uh, second part of my talk um, to our, our work in adult tumor genesis. And I'm going to remind, I think everybody here knows that the first pancreatic cancer is one of the worst human cancers. It uh, has basically a five-year survival rate of less than 5%. Um, uh, and almost everybody who, who, I mean, if you actually look at true cures, the estimate is that even with surgical intervention, maybe 1% of people uh, actually survive the rest of their life without recurrence of disease. And the main reason that pancreatic cancer is so deadly um, is that it's diagnosed at a very, very late stage of its progression. That is at a, at a point where, in most cases, it's already metastasized. So that even if you can't find metastases, when you remove, if you surgically excise the pancreas, um, the, the uh, liver, lung, et cetera, they'll start to it'll turn out those metastases were present, and, and shortly thereafter, they will grow and, and, and kill the patient. So, this is a, a, a very interesting, I would say basically believable paper where they tried to estimate by, they did whole genome sequencing on um, full-blown pancreatic adenocarcinoma. They knew they could basically look at multiple uh, independent metastases as well as primary tumors and figure out what mutations that occurred. And they kind of back calculated then based on inferring the mutation rate and inferring the rate of cell proliferation, how long it took for those um, uh, metastatic life-threatening um, uh, tumors to arise, and they came up with these different stages. And, and the stage that we're quite interested in is the longest one here, which is they estimate it takes about 12 years between the initiating mutations of pancreatic cancer, which is an activating mutation of KRAS, which I'll talk about more in a moment, um, and the formation of a cell which is actually capable of, of undergoing metastasis. So uh, this 
12-year window, then, is one in which it might be possible to, to identify those lesions, to prevent their further growth, uh, and perhaps to uh, 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 screen um, for people who are at risk of these uh, lesions progressing to a life-threatening disease. So that's one of our motivations for studying pancreatic cancer. I should say, of course, the other is generally just an interest that because we have a developmental biology background um, and um, I just thought that there might be some insights we might be able to provide to pancreatic cancer from thinking about it in a developmental context and I'll try to convince you that we've done that. So I think people are probably familiar from Ken Olive's work here uh, with the, the mouse model of pancreatic cancer but I'll just review how this has been set up. So as I mentioned the initial mutation that occurs in pancreatic cancer in humans is an activation of the KRAS oncogene, which basically locks it into a constitutively active um, GTP-bound state. This is a, uh, the most common of these mutations in humans is glycine 12 to aspartic acid, G12D. Um, and this can be engineered, this was engineered several years ago at Tyler Jack's lab uh, 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 by Dave Tubison, um, where this G12D mutation was put into the second exon of, of KRAS with this transcriptional stop sequence upstream. So this allele is inactive, it's not expressed in the, uh, in the mouse until Cree comes on and then that, uh, 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 that mutant allele is expressed. And the key thing, one of the key uh, aspects of it is that it's expressed from its own endogenous promoter. It turns out that if you, if you overexpress KRAS, you can get all sorts of artifactual phenotypes, including senescence and other uh, uh, issues that are, that are not reproduced when you express it from its endogenous promoter. So the key thing is that when Cree is active, for example, using PDX1 Cree, then that mimics at a molecular level the point mutation that occurs in, in human disease, except that instead of affecting a single cell, it affects the entire organ. So what happened to those organs? So what happens, as was shown by, by uh, Dave Tubison now more than 10 years ago, um, is that the first thing that happens is the formation of these so-called PANIN, or pancreatic intraepithelial neoplasia lesions. And I'll talk a lot about these PANIN lesions. These are, in this, this is an early stage PANIN, a PANIN 1A. It looks very similar to human PANIN 1A, and I'll sort of point out the key distinguishing features of it. So these are very, very tall cells. They have a lot of mucin in them, so we can actually use histological stains like alcyon blue or periodic acid shift. These highlight these, these PANINs very nicely and distinguish them from normal duct cells. They express other ductal markers, like cytokarin 19. They do not express acinar markers. But the interesting thing about them is that you, in the mouse at least, you typically just find them just sitting there in the middle of the exocrine tissue, just in the periphery of the organ, um, not usually connected to a main duct. So that, you know, they, that doesn't mean that they didn't come from duct cells, but it raised the possibility that they might not come from duct cells. And the thing from a developmental biology perspective that interested me about this, this mouse was, we're expressing KRAS through the entire organ, but these appear very focally and, and with a kind of delayed kinetics. If you look at a newborn mouse, the pancreas looks completely normal. Starting about two months of age, you get pan and one A's. As the mice get older, they get more and more malignant. They get more of these lesions, they get larger. Eventually, at a, more than a year of age, some of these mice will develop metastatic cancer, and you can accelerate that by putting in mutant K, uh, P53 or other tumor suppressor genes. But again, most of the cells are, don't care that KRAS is there. They're not pr producing these lesions. So the questions for us were, where, what kind of cells were these before they became cancerous or precancerous? Uh, and why don't the other cells um, of the organ respond to KRAS the way that these ones did? And I, the other thing I should point out is that this is probably not a, a you know, second hit, as it were. We know from sequencing or from, from very extensive um, uh, sequencing of human cannons that these early stage pannin 1As, they have mutant KRAS, but they don't have any of the other hits that mature pancreatic cancer has. They don't have loss of tumor suppression genes, for example. So it might not be a mutational event, it might be sort of an epigenetic event. 
that distinguishes the cell that initiates tumor genesis from a cell that just sits there. So one of the things we want to know is what is the cell of origin for this disease? So as I mentioned, these cells express characteristics, many antigens specific to duct cells, and have always, this is the uh, classic histology uh, um, uh, viewpoint has been that they come from duct cells. But several years ago, um, uh, a group uh, published a very nice negative result paper. Unusual, I should say, because usually these things don't get published. And I think the reason, I, I have to say, it's very, it's very gratifying that they did, that they did publish this, because I suspect they, they were one of several groups that didn't get a result from this. So they took a duct-specific promoter, hooked it up to mutant KRAS in just a straight transgenic mouse, with the idea that that would follow in the footsteps of many tumor models in many organs, that that should induce some kind of tumor. But in fact, they got essentially no phenotype. Um, and the nice thing was they went through and did all the controls to show that the transgene really was expressed. These cells really did have using KRAS loaded up with GTP, but it wasn't producing tumors. At the same time, another group did a very analogous experiment, but instead of using a duct-specific promoter, they used an acinar-specific promoter, a lastase, and used that to drive KRAS. And that gave kind of a weird tumor that had some cells that had an acinar feet, or some cells that had acinar characteristics, and other cells that had ductal characteristics. But what it told us is that if you hit acinar cells with mutant KRAS, they can become malignant, and they can do so, in the course of doing so, they can generate ductal tumor cells. And it, it was also then shown a few years after that that when you injure the pancreas, particularly in, in, in acute pancreatitis, acinar cells can transiently express duct cell markers, and a number of groups have expanded on this over the years. So suggesting that acinar cells have some inherent plasticity in their differentiation program. So for this reason, uh, that we began to look at whether acinar cells might be um, competent to form cannons. To do this, we used a um, uh, Cree that's targeted to exocrine pancreas, so a lactase promoter, and it's a modified Cree that's uh, tamoxifen-inducible. So by in, um, uh, treating the mice with tamoxifen at a specific time point, we activate the Cree. That'll turn on or turn off genes of interest. In this case, we're turning on a laxi reporter. What you can see is that an adult pancreas uh, of a mouse that did not receive tamoxifen, there's very few blue laxi-positive cells. Two weeks after giving this mouse tamoxifen, there's widespread uh, blue staining. And the nice thing is it's specific to acinar cells. We do not see recombination in any duct cells. So then we can ask, we know that if we hit the entire pancreas in KRAS, we will get tannins. What if we hit only acinar cells? And we have um, another mouse that we've started to use as well, PTF1A. So that's that acinar-specific transcription factor in the adult, again, expressing pre-DRT. Uh, and I, I will, I'll kind of show data interchangeably from these two models. And the answer is yes. If we, if we target KRAS to acinar cells, they will form cannons. So these are early stage cannons. This is an early stage cannon up here. Um, it's stained, these stain for periodic acid shift. So this is just one of several markers that distinguishes these from normal ducts. Um, they also express true duct markers, like cytoparin 19. They don't express acinar markers. Uh, and they can, they can get more malignant. So here you can see inflammation, cell shedding into the lumen. Uh, and other people have gone on to show that if you take P53 in this context as well, they will form full-blown uh, adenocarcinomas. But again, as in the um, case I showed you where you're expressing throughout the whole pancreas, we're, we're hitting most of the acinar cells of the pancreas with mutant KRAS, but most of them are not responding. So is, there something that, is that because they, they, they uh, are incompetent to respond, or is there some other event that they need to, to happen to, to, to promote tumor genesis? And we were stimulated by the fact that in humans, 
chronic pancreatitis is a well-known risk factor for pancreatic cancer, especially hereditary chronic pancreatitis gives you something like a 50-fold increased risk of getting cancer. So we thought that perhaps we could mimic this by inducing pancreatitis in the mice, and for our first experiment, we did just an acute pancreatitis experiment. So the, there's a drug called cerulean. If you give it at very high doses, um, it basically induces acute pancreatitis. In a wild-type mouse, within 7 to 14 days, um, uh, well, you have initial damage over, the, over a 2- to 3-day period, and then in the next 7-plus days, the organ completely regenerates back to normal, and we and others have used this as a model of regeneration of the exocrine pancreas. And here, we ask, if we activate KRAS in ASMR cells and then treat them with cerulean to induce pancreatitis, um, what will happen? So here is mice where we activate KRAS alone. So basically, this is a three weeks. We've activated KRAS here and look three weeks later. If we don't give them cerulean, at this time point, basically nothing happens. It takes six or more weeks for ASNR cells normally to give rise to pannins. But if we give those mice cerulean, now we start to see pannins popping up all over the place. So the pancreas is dramatically abnormal. It does not regenerate properly. There's huge amounts of persistent inflammation um, and pannin formation. So this is one of, of several papers that, that's come out over the last five years um, indicating that inflammation has a synergistic role with RAS signaling. And one model at least posits that the mutant KRAS um, actually has relatively little um, uh, signaling capacity by itself, but when inflammatory um, pathways are activated, that can stimulate RAS to become even further active, and that's required for transformation. And there's a positive feedback in that once KRAS becomes hyperactive, that in turn promotes inflammation. So you have this positive feedback loop that sustains high RAS activity and promotes tumor genesis. So what I've shown you then is that ASNR cells are capable of initiating this process. And then the question is, are, are other cells, is this just a general generic property of cells in the pancreas? And to um, address the other, so the central cells, I should say, are basically a subset of duct cells. So the, the other obviously strong candidate as a cell of origin would be duct cells. And to address this, whether duct cells can do this required an adult duct-specific reducible pre-line. And actually, at the time that we started our work, we didn't have this. Um, so I'm going to show you a couple of figures from a recent paper of my colleague, Micah Sander. So what Micah did was she compared two different pre-lines, a, a duct-specific pre-line to an ASNAR-specific pre-line. And what she found was that if you target KRAS to ASNR cells, just as we've shown, you get pannins. If you target it to duct cells, you do not get pannins. So this is basically one lesion that they got out of many, many mice that they looked at. You can see most of the pancreas is normal looking, whereas the pancreas here, it would, uh, where you've targeted ASNR cells with KRAS, is fibrotic and full of alcine blue positive pannin lesions. Even if you give the mice pancreatitis, um, the duct cells are resistant to KRAS. And so she then was able to calculate, normalizing for the amount of combination that they had, on a cellular level, ASNR cells are more than 100-fold more likely to form pannins after KRAS activation. So what that says is that, in fact, ASNR cells are not only a potential cell of origin, but within the exocrine pancreas, they seem to be the major cell of origin. And so we began to wonder then, we know, I mean, the irony here is that these cells are not ASNR-like when they become pannins. They, they've totally shut down their ASNR differentiation program. And we began to wonder about the signaling pathways that might regulate this. So I mentioned DOP signaling. In the developing pancreas, inhibits ASNR differentiation. We want to know, does NOP signaling um, help drive the dedifferentiation of these cells in tumor genesis? So we um, have a, uh, a mouse that allows us to activate the NOP pathway in a pre-inducible <coughs> manner. And so what we did was basically take mice 
Um, and in exocrine cells specifically, either activate notulone, raxolone, or both pathways together. What we find is that if we activate notulone in the adult pancreas, actually very little happens. And this is in some ways surprising because we know that if we activate the same transgene in the embryonic pancreas, we completely block differentiation. But in the adult pancreas, it actually doesn't, doesn't have that effect for reasons that we're still not totally sure about. I should say that uh, no notch target, notch target genes are still being turned on here. This is not like the, the pathway is not, the, the transgene is not working. Um, Rasoline alone induces a small number of cannons, um, but when we actually knock and rats together, we get this massive, almost the entire extra pancreas basically turning into cannons. And you can see that even within one to two weeks after tamoxifen induction, so one to two weeks after we activate these pathways, we get huge numbers of cannons forming, whereas RAS at that point has very, very few. When we looked at these short-term experiments, so this one to two week period where cannons are just starting to form, one of the first changes that we observed was downregulation of that PTF1A transcription factor that I mentioned. So PTF1A, here's a control uh, immunofluorescence. Uh, when we activate NOTCH, the NOTCH positive cells also turn on GFP. So these are GFP negative because there's no CRE. PTF1A, these are the nuclei of acinar cells, and then CKA19 is a duct marker, so you can see they're not overlapping. They're small ducts surrounded by normal acinar cells. If we activate NOTCH, and now we've got GFP positive cells, as I said, that doesn't really do anything. So there's still normal CK19, but restrained duct cells. PTF1A is still expressed. But if we activate Notch and RAS together, now these green cells have turned off PTF1A and have turned on this duct marker. So PTF1A downregulation appears to be a very early event in, in tumor initiation. So what is PTF1A? So PTF1A um, was identified um, actually almost 20 years ago, maybe more than 20 years ago now, um, as a, uh, based on, its ability, on, on the fact that it binds to and regulates the promoters of basically almost every acinar cell-specific gene. So the digestive enzymes in particular, or is where it was first characterized, it's a, it's a basic helix-loop helix transcription factor dimerizing the E proteins, binds to these digestive enzyme genes, and um, Ray McDonald and his colleagues have shown that it forms an autoregulatory loop. So it not only promotes acinar differentiation, but also maintains its own gene expression. So it's a good candidate, then, as something that would have to be shut down for these cells to lose their acinar characteristics. And this is just showing, uh, again, here we've actually driven um, KRAS in PTF1A positive cells. Here's a control uh, pancreas looking normal. These brown dots then are the nuclei of acinar cells. These are the ducts which are PTF1A negative. And when we get these, when we get cannons forming from these cells, they also turn, on, turn off PTF1A, whereas the surrounding normal acinar cells remain PTF1A positive. So the question that my um, other graduate student, uh, or another graduate student in my lab, Nate Craw, has asked recently is, is this downregulation actually functional? Is this just an epiphenomenon that just happens because the cells are, are becoming cancerous, or is this actually a required um, step for pan information? So to ask this, what he did was to knock out PTF1A in the adult exocrine pancreas with a conditional allele that was provided by Chris Wright at Vanderbilt University. And so I'll walk you through this uh, uh, panel by panel. So this is a two weeks after tamoxifen induction. This is six weeks after tamoxifen induction. Control mice look normal. Remarkably, the, the PTF1A knockout mice look unexpectedly normal. And we can talk afterwards if you have to discuss one-on-one uh, -on -one the reasons for this. We think this is potentially a technical artifact. Um, we know that if we let these mice go for like months, uh, eventually, a subset of these cells will de-differentiate and, and turn on duct markers. But they don't form cannons. They basically just sit there. RAS by itself at two weeks doesn't really do anything. At six weeks, you start to see a few panonations forming. But when we activate RAS while at the same time depleting PTF1A, now we get panons forming within two weeks and very robustly within six weeks. 
And importantly, at the same time as PANs are being formed, we also have upregulation of downstream components of the RAS pathway. So RAS by itself actually gives you relatively little activation of, of the MAP kinase pathway, here marked by phospho um, MAP kinase or ERK. But when we activate RAS in a PTF1A knockout background, now we get robust phospho ERK staining, suggesting that, that in some way the presence of PTF1A is limiting the ability of RAS to engage its downstream partners. Nate's just quantified this here. We've taken advantage of the fact that these um, cannon cells very uniquely stain with alcium blue, uh, which is a, a stain for, for, in this case, from mucins. So you can see here's a small lesion in the KRAS mouse that's basically no alcium blue in controls or keeping funny knockouts and tons of alcium blue in a, in a double uh, background. So you can see this very large increase in lesion formation. Obviously, complete loss of PTF1A is not something that happens under normal circumstances. It's not a tumor suppressor gene. It's not deleted in, in actual cancer cells. But we thought that because it has this autoregulatory property, perhaps what we're having is an effect of lowering it to some sub-threshold level. So we asked if we just took one copy of PTF1A away, what would happen? And the result is that even hemozygosity from PTF1A sensitizes you to activated RAS. So here is a, these are young mice. These are one-month-old mice. We're activated uh, using pdf one crease so with whole pancreas with KRAS. PTF1A hats have no phenotype. KRAS by itself, at, a, at this young age, it doesn't induce any pans. You get only these small metaplastic lesions, which are probably the precursors of pans. But if you activate KRAS and PTF1A knockout background, you can see much more fibrosis and inflammation, and critically, the formation of pans. So what we think then is that there's a mutual negative feedback between these two pathways. RAS um, has a positive feedback loop with inflammation um, that stimulates its activity to high levels. But PTF1A is somehow able to prevent that stimulation. And then in turn, when RAS becomes hyperactive, if we have RAS and we induce inflammation, we're able to shut PTF1A down. So you have this bistable state where differentiated acinar cells are kept in a very um, uh, uh, stable state by PTF1A. But if PTF1A levels drop and this autoregulatory feedback loop gets weakened, RAS in turn becomes hyperactive. And as RAS gets stronger, it further feeds back and turns this off. So we're very interested in understanding the mechanisms. So what are the target genes, especially PTF1A, that mediate this inhibition of RAS? Because this is basically an endogenous mechanism that the cell possesses um, for limiting the effect of this tumor-inducing gene. And then the other experiment we're, we're really excited to uh, hopefully be able to do in the next few months is to re-express PTF1A. So if we force PTF1A to, be, to stay on or if we turn it back on via an exogenous transgene, can we actually flip the switch back and redifferentiate those cells? And the last thing I'm going to just end with is an experiment that, that Nate came up with that I thought was uh, kind of crazy, uh, but he's very energetic and I thought he should do it. Uh, so he asked, so he looked at this diagram and said, well, RAS and has this feedback with inflammation. And this is mutant RAS in the context of pancreatic cancer. But if we got rid of PTF1A, would this feedback loop be able to work with just straight wild-type RAS? So that is to say, if we knock out PTF1A and induce inflammation, will that feed-forward loop be initiated and get to drive cannons? So here's the experiment, similar to that cerulean experiment I showed you before. In this case, he induces tamoxifen, induces deletion of PTF1A by tamoxifen treatment. Um, seven days later, induces pancreatitis with cerulean, and then come back, comes back seven days after that. And in a wild-type mouse, um, the cerulean-treated mice are completely regenerated within seven days of, 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 uh, uh, of, of pancreatitis. So the, basically, the saline-treated and cerulean-treated controls look normal. The saline-treated knockout look normal, but you can see that in the PTF1A knockout, when we induce with cerulean, the regeneration is completely blocked. There's huge amounts of inflammation here. 
And if you look closely, we can see things that look like they might be the first stages of hand formation. So there's, by ancient E, you can see these kind of weird structures. You never see these in a normal regenerating pancreas. Um, and the kind of key thing for us was that these all stain with alcine blue. So this widespread formation of these alcine blue positive lesions are, we're now basically extending this to later time points to ask, will these form you know, fully robust panins and even perhaps progressive cancer? Suggesting that what, what pancreatic, or what KRAS's key function is at the initiation stage of pancreatic cancer is really to force the downregulation of PTF1A. And once PTF1A is downregulated and then inflammation comes in, um, that is what really initiates everything. So just to, uh, to end with our kind of our newer model for how pancreatic cancer form, rather than initiating in duct cells, we think it initiates in acinar cells. But that those mutants, um, acinar cells, can just sit there and not do anything malignant for a long time until they undergo what we're calling a reprogramming step, where they then form these pre-malignant duct-like cells. And those cells are the ones which are then competent to form cannons and then ultimately pancreatic cancer. And we think that, that uh, a number of, of risk factors in humans for pancreatic cancer, including inflammation, directly feed into this reprogramming step. So we think this might be really one of the key steps of pancreatic cancer uh, initiation. We think what's happening here is that RAS activity, which is slightly elevated by mutant RAS, then can be fully unleashed into transforming uh, uh, levels where you have full activation of the MAP kinase and other signaling pathways. So that'll end, and uh, thank you people who did this work. So the first half of the development work was all done by Brett Baumgartner. Then the cancer work, with the uh, part, uh, the initial demonstration that asked ourselves to promote, provide pancreatic cancer in a notch-induced way was done by a former student, John Baldelao, and Nathan Cross, the current student, is keeping that project going. Matt Keith, Rachel, uh, our other grad students whose work I didn't get to talk about, Gabby my tech. These are some local collaborators, and I'm very grateful to Conrad Bosler for sharing his uh, Bakutinian mice. Chris Wright for the Flocks uh, PTF1A mice, and then the um, work on PTF1A's target genes in collaboration with Ray McDonald at UT Southwestern. And I'll be happy to take any questions. So that was great, Charlie. I'll, I'll ask the first question. Um, so not signaling when overactivated in a cell autonomous manner represses uh, PTF1A. <laughs> So endogenously, without the notch ICD, which mm -hmm. is a very strong stimulus, do you envision that, where is the notch signal coming from? Right, and that's a good question. In fact, there is contradictory, so that's old data, that, you know, that's from our paper from five years ago now, and there's been since contradictory data. So there are drug inhibitor experiments that show that if you treat KRAS mice with, with gamma secretase inhibitors, that inhibits pain inflammation. But then there are genetic knockout experiments that say that if you delete notch one, which is one of the major notch receptors in the pancreas, you actually accelerate pain inflammation. So, there might be two separate roles for NOTS, one that's actually inhibitory and one that's stimulatory, and they probably are separated in time. And we think that by, by putting in the activated NOTS, we're probably hitting one of those, that, uh, you know, driving it to uh, hyperactive levels. Steve Leach and other people have shown that PANINs express high levels of, of Jagged 1. Um, I don't know, I think that's the main ligand they express, and maybe Jagged 2 as well. So there are NOTS ligands present, but I think... Um, the genetics are a little tricky, and that's partly one of the reasons we sort of really moved into the PTF1A stuff is because the notch thing has become more, more convoluted than we'd hoped. Uh, uh, on the other hand, as I said, the pharmacological experiments where they use gamma secretase inhibitors, multiple groups have gotten that to work as, a, as a, to block pan information. So either the gamma secretase inhibitors are doing something that's not related to the deletion of notch, or there's something more, um, there you know, is some kind of multivalent role for notch, and it depends on when and how you hit it, whether you do it genetically or, or pharmacologically. Yes. Sorry. So when you 
talk about inflammation, but you tested cerulean, which would get a, a lot of damage. Have you tried just with treating the mice with LPS or, or doing a viral infection of the, just to see if that also, that level of So we have not done that, but Craig Logson has done that. So he had a really nice paper um, a couple of years ago where they found that, in fact, LPS does stimulate. They didn't do any virus. So they did a variety of, I think, LPS and maybe one other model. Uh, they may have been duct ligation as well. So, so two other models of inflammation in the pancreas all promoting uh, pan inflammation. Yeah, yeah. And they, I mean, they, I, I had inflammation in a generic way. People mechanistically are starting to dissect it. So there's evidence that NF-kappa B is required. Um, stat signaling seems to be involved as well. And kind of putting that into a linear pathway hasn't been done yet. But. Can I ask another question? Yeah. So you did show central cells, and you didn't talk. And I know there's really there's not very good or any cre that would mark the central acid. So SOX9 Cree does hit them actually pretty well. So you'd hit both. Yes. Do you know if, if, if those cells are contributing at all? So based on so there's actually uh, so the SOX9 hits those pretty well. HNF1 beta Cree ER hits them as well. So I know that there is unpublished actually I think Matias has recently published data that, that so another duct specific Cree also doesn't drive pans. And it's true that those um, centroacinar cells are, are a subset of duct cells, so any duct-specific Cre will hit a, many centroacinar cells, but it's always possible that there are some centroacinar cells that are unique and that are not hit by those Cre. So I think that's the, the one caveat that we have. We actually had, we made a Cre, we actually made a, a Cre for this purpose. We made a HES1 Cre ER several years ago um, because that, it's a notch target. We know it hits, it's expressing early pancreatic progenitors, and it's been reported to be expressing centroacinar cells, and we confirmed it is expressing centroacinar cells. The problem was, when we, tar- when we hit that with KRAS, um, it tar- it's also expressed in the stomach, and those mice die because they have this enormous stomach hyperplasia. So within a month or so, the mice start getting sick. But the, in that month, there were no pains being formed. So I think that it is... Um, you know, that's, that's a sort of a negative result because, you know, it's only a month. It might not be enough time. But uh, I would say the balance of evidence would say the central acid cells are probably not able to do it. Yeah? I really enjoyed your talk. So I have a question about your question about the top. Mm-hmm. And, and we have a not talk once. Mm-hmm. You see uh, an increase in, uh, increase in not signaling. Mm-hmm. That is... Uh, Somehow, you revert by damage the taste inhibition. And so I'm wondering about the mechanism. Do you think that, uh, that the absence of beta-catenine uh, receptors or ligands are overexpressed? Right, so the question is how, how might NOTCH become hyperactive when we lose beta catenin? And that's something that we, we don't know yet. I mean, we've only just started to, 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 to I mean, this data is all data that came, in, you know, basically since the fall, the, the actual functional data. And the, um, and we actually looked a little bit. We didn't, we've looked at a couple of the notch ligands we know are expressing epithelium. We don't see a dramatic change in the beta catenin knockout. Um, and the, the, we've started now staying for things like HES1, like downstream targets. The problem is those antibodies are really dirty. So I'm not sure, I think we're probably going to have to basically take the epithelial cells either by, by just manually dissecting them or fact sorting them and then just look for target gene upregulation to see if we can, and then by qPCR look for ligands and stuff. But at a, at a cellular level, we think that what, what might, so placoglobin turns out to have some structurally distinct properties from beta catenin. So when placoglobin goes up, that's probably sufficient to keep the cells together. I mean, that mediates the inherent interactions. But it also changes, I mean, the, the kind of adhesion that's formed by placoglobin is a little bit different than what's formed by, by beta catenin. So there might be, to some extent, this could be um, 
somewhat mediated by the upregulation of platyhemoglobin. So that's going to change the adhesive properties of the cells, and that might strengthen the ability of notching and ligands to signal to one another. So the problem is that's speculation, and, and it's really hard to think about how we're going to test that, because we can't do any kind of biochemistry on an E11.5 pancreas. So I, I think at best we can get some correlative data, and then we can think about maybe making a double knockout of platyhemoglobin and see if we really, you know, so we're going to try and look at desmosomes and stuff that we know we would expect to be upregulated in a platyhemoglobin-dependent manner, and see if there's any correlation there, but it's going to be a little bit a little bit tough uh, to answer the, that question directly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, also, when you delete the signaling of beta-catenin, I understood you have uh, exocrine cells that are escapers, mm -hmm. exocrine cells that are with that lacking of beta-catenin. Um, do you think those different exocrine cells are going to be somehow different molecular? And also, yes, that um, do you think because you said that uh, panins occur in certain places of the exocrine tissue, but not in others. Mm -hmm. Do you think there is susceptibility of some exocrine tissue that there are different? Right, so there's two questions. So the first question is, uh, what happens to the ass, essentially what happens, like do that, when, when acinar cells develop without beta clean signaling, do those have different properties than normal acinar cells? And they're less proliferative. So then as time goes on, they get diluted away because they're, they're dividing less, but at a, at every other level, histologically, in terms of gene expression of ASNAR markers, they look completely the same. But that, that's a negative result. We don't know that there isn't something more subtle going on. And then the other question is, are, are there some parts of the exocrine tissue that are more susceptible to forming tannins than others? And uh, I may have misspoke. I didn't mean to say that it's not, it's not so much that there's specific regions of the pancreas that are preferentially forming tannins. What I meant was that you don't see them next to large ducts. You tend to see them kind of in the peripheral part of the organ or distal. And, what I think is probably going on is that when you get a pannin under normal circumstances, that's because there's some micro-inflammation going on. And, and you know, uh, you would never detect that clinically. It wouldn't probably even cause any discomfort from a, for, from a human perspective. But it's very likely that just in a normal pancreas, just due to the wear and tear of life, there's little bits of inflammation here and there. Um, and that, that when you get that little bit of inflammation, if that cell has, if there's a keratin cell there, that will initiate tumorigenesis. So, one of the things that we'd be really interested to try is to, and in fact, people have started to do, you know, treat these mice with anti-inflammatory drugs, and they tend to suppress pain formation. And so we're kind of interested in the mechanism of that. We think that actually PPAR gamma signaling might be involved. There's some indirect evidence for that. So we're, we propose to do an experiment where we'll induce KRAS and not give the mice pancreatitis, but just keep them on a PPAR, uh, ag, PPAR gamma agonist, which we know suppresses inflammation in the pancreas, and to see if that would suppress tumor initiation, and then figure out, you know, is that what you know, mechanistically what's really going on there. But I think the, the answer is that the, it's where there's little bits of inflammation is where um, uh, uh, tumors begin. All right. Well, thank you again.